According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Once again, we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. I'm going to make two side trips, though, on my way to Hebrews chapter 2. And uh, you all will follow along very well because you are excellent students of the Word of God. And uh, what we have to look forward to and what uh, we should be looking forward to, what believers have always looked forward to, um, may not be what you expect. And so hopefully we'll be able to uh, resolve some questions. A couple of weeks ago we had some questions on our Wednesday night and there have been other questions since then. And I want to make sure that we have clarity in all that we study and what we are looking forward to. Because according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Are you looking for these things? I am. We all are. We should be. So let's be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. In preparation for the study of the Word of God, let's bow for a word of prayer, asking the Father to open our spiritual eyes. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before You with such uh, thankfulness thankful for the Word of God, thankful for the blessings we have to assemble together, thankful that all of this has meaning because of the work Your Son accomplished on the cross. Father, I rejoice in His finished work, and we are eagerly anticipating His uh, future work, that which is about to begin, Father, because we know that when You send Him forth to gather His bride, that uh, from then on and forevermore, thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so, Father, uh, that might even be today. Oh, that it were. Father, we thank you for these blessings. We pray in the meantime, so long as we're waiting, that we would be found faithful, that we would be busy about your business. Uh, how perfect would it be, Father, if we were assembled together as a flock, studying to show ourselves approved when that trumpet sounds. Um, so, Father, uh, open our eyes, bless us through your word, equip us, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, as we uh, transition from verses 1 through 4 into verses 5 and following, uh, in chapter 2, by the way, same thing with chapter 1, you've got four verses that act as a prologue, and then uh, verses after that for the rest of the chapter that cite Old Testament passages and illustrate and teach uh, and amplify uh, things. So something very similar is happening here in chapter 2 with four verses, very deep, uh, that we don't want to drift, we don't want to neglect the gospel, we want to live out our salvation with fear and trembling, we want to glorify Jesus Christ day by day, because if we neglect what it is we're called to do, judgment is coming, that God will hold us accountable. And uh, we're going to see this over and over again. The warning passages of Hebrews are directed towards a redeemed people, a redeemed people that ought to walk as redeemed people. And we ought to be pursuing the grace redemption way of life because we've been given so much. And that's what we see here. And again, the angels is the corollary or the contrast. The word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. All right, given that, given that angels are reaping what they've sown and getting what they've earned and deserved, are you not glad to be objects of grace? Is it not a good thing to not get what we've earned and deserved? 
to get God's grace and God's righteousness and God's blessings because Jesus Christ received what you and I have earned and deserved. He accepted our wrath. He accepted our sin. He paid the penalty for our sin. And so we are not the recipients of uh, just penalties, that Christ himself is the recipient of our just penalty. And so given all that, how will we escape if we, the grace-redeemed ones, don't walk like grace-redeemed ones? Our consequences are dire. And uh, the warning passages of Hebrews makes that clear again and again and again. And so um, verse 5 then says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified, some were saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? And so this then launches everything that follows for the rest of chapter 2. That spotlights the glories of man and specifically the Son of Man and the role that Jesus Christ has. When He came as the Son of Man, uh, those, that title just absolutely drove His critics angry. They were furious over who is this Son of Man and why do you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? And they were very scornful of that title, Son of Man. And uh, of course, they were denying that He had any right to it. They were denying that He was the Son of David, that He was the rightful King. Um, but they didn't react to Son of David the way they reacted to Son of Man. And I find that extraordinary. In fact, it's uh, pivotal, pivotal in some of the Life of Christ studies that you, that you do in that. But I want to take some time today to make sure we're not lost on this about subjecting to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. Okay? So we have the world we live in now, that's this present world, and then there's the world to come, all right? and it's not here yet. We know it's not here yet because it's still the world to come, okay? The coming world isn't here yet. Once it does get here, then it'll be obvious that's the world that came. It's the new heavens and new earth, and we will speak about this world as the world that was, and even the world before this one. That's going to become the world that was and was before that, <laughs> right? So when we think about the world that was, that was the angelic earth, the world that is, that's us, humanity in this world, and then the world to come. So the angels had a world, humans have a world, and who gets the next world? It's not the angels, okay? It's redeemed humanity. And that's, that's the whole point of what we spend two chapters to detail, that angels have a destiny, and it's servitude. Angels are presently beings of power and glory. And what do they have to look forward to? Servitude. They are going to be diminished, whereas you and I are already diminished. Humanity is very pathetic, very weak, very temporary, very, uh, we're just dust creatures compared to the angels. We're just less than cockroaches. I don't feel a lot of sympathy when I stomp on a roach, all right? And the angels don't have a lot of sympathy for us. At least the fallen angels clearly don't. I believe the elect angels have a sense of awe and wonder when they observe the humility of our Savior, when, when uh, the shepherds uh, observed the angels that came and sang the unbelievable aspect that God the Son is now cradled in human hands, that the creator of the universe, the Lord God of the armies, there was Yahweh Tzivayoth swaddled in, in, in garments and laying in a manger. And uh, no wonder the angels were singing, the elect angels 
we're singing those praises. So I want to take make sure that we have this sense of what do we have to look forward to? What did Israel have to look forward to? What did Gentiles have to look forward to? Okay, and, and that way maybe it might help us to anticipate what we have to look forward to as well. And so um, you'll notice, let me just back up, what, who had the stewardship before, before um, the church? You remember? Do I need to show this again? Before the church was Israel, right? Where the Jewish people had the stewardship, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, and they had Hebrew scriptures. What advantage had the Jews? Great in every respect. They were stewards of the oracles of God. And so Israel had the stewardship before the church. By the way, they will have their stewardship restored to them when we're gone. At the rapture of the church, Israel resumes their stewardship. And so that's why we have the, the, uh, the little strip there that goes across the top of the church, and then Israel's stewardship continues over there. But before Israel, Gentiles had a stewardship. Okay? So I'm going to get on my side trip this morning, and communion on Sunday is probably a bad Sunday to make a side trip. But on a Sunday, on a side trip this morning, I'm going to show you one example from Israel and one example from the Gentiles of what they had to look forward to. So the book of Daniel, you can just hold your finger there in Hebrews and flip with me back to Daniel. Aim for uh, the last verse of the last chapter. Can you do that? In Logos, just type Daniel chapter 50, verse 100. Okay, and it's it's a little clue, it's a little hint. Um, if you pick a chapter that's too high, Logos just sends you to the last chapter. And if you pick a verse that's too high, then because there aren't that many verses in the chapter, then Logos just sends you to the last verse. And the software is smarter than you and says, well, I don't know what this dummy's looking for, but uh, if you want if you want Daniel chapter fifty verse two hundred. Um, your Logos software will say, okay, well, how about Daniel 12, 13? Is that good for you? you know, that's, that's all that God wrote. All right. So the last chapter, the last verse of Daniel. And, and this is like, um, this is beautiful. Daniel was a great pattern for all of us because he kept asking questions. He'd get visions and he'd want to know more. And he'd get visions and he'd want to go more. And then finally, um, the Lord says, all right, that's enough. Okay. And... Um, you know, in verse 8, he's asking questions, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And he said, go away, Daniel, okay? Or go your way, Daniel, or just go, okay, in the Hebrew. Uh, For these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. So this is not doctrine you're entitled to. This is not doctrine that Israel is entitled to. There's future mystery doctrine that the church will receive, but Daniel, you can't get that. And then at the end of of the book, He says in verse 13, but as for you, go your way to the end. Daniel has lived through a 70-year captivity. He's an old man now in his 80s or 90s. And uh, and so the Lord says, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. For your allotted portion at the end of the age. So this is what a Jewish believer had to look forward to. His, his destiny, his anticipation was that he would rise again at the last day. Remember Mary and Martha were weeping about Lazarus and Jesus said, your brother will live again. They said, well, we know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Because they were, they were applying the Daniel principle, the expectation of resurrection, the expectation of future glory. They were looking forward to the blessings of Abraham and the millennial kingdom. 
Okay? Does that shock you in any way? Does that, is that shocking at all? Because, see, I think we get trapped in our New Testament way of thinking as church-age believers that I can't wait to die and go to heaven. Okay? They were looking forward to rising again at the last day, to rise again and reign with Christ. Or not reign with Christ, but to rise again and enter into the kingdom. Okay? To receive your allotted portion at the end of the age. All right, so keep that in mind. That's a Jewish example. Now you go back to Job and you get a Gentile example. Job 19, Job, Esther, Job, Psalms. Uh, Job 19, 23. And why do I remember 19, 23? Because of all the great significant things that happened in 1923. Or not. All right, 1923, Job 19, 23. And what was this Gentile expecting? And a Gentile without a Hebrew Bible. A Gentile that was before Abraham. A Gentile that was living back during the dispensation of man. And he says, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Well, guess what, Job? (laughs) They're in a book. They're in the Bible. And uh, we're reading them now. Uh, He says, with an iron stylus and lead. Well, that's not permanent that they were engraved in the rock forever. Rock's not permanent. The heavens and earth are going to be destroyed, but guess what? Your words are eternal, written in the living and abiding Word of God. Then he says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. Here's a Gentile believer before Moses, before the Old Testament, before any Hebrew Scriptures, and he understands the doctrine of kinsman Redeemer. He knows his Redeemer. And not just a Redeemer is coming someday. His Redeemer lives now, presently lives. The living God is the one that will come as His kinsman Redeemer. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, He will take His stand on the earth. Why is that significant? Because we are earth creatures. We are creatures of the dust. It's actually the word dust. He will take His stand on the dust. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. That's his Redeemer. The living God is his Redeemer, his kinsman Redeemer, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. You know, that's the first one you're going to look at when you look for when you get to heaven. Am I going to be looking for my mom? Am I going to be looking for, you know, I don't care who you've lost, a spouse, a parent, a loved one, a child, whatever. The first face you want to see is Jesus Christ, the one that makes everything else worthwhile. And then after that, okay, maybe a thousand years later, when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, I'll tear my, way, my eyes away from Jesus long enough to look for my mom <laughs> or whatever, okay? The case may be. Now, um, I, whom my flesh shall see, whom I myself shall behold, whom my eyes will see and not another, my heart faints within me. So this is what he had to look forward to, okay? Standing on this earth in a bodily resurrection. You and I, of course, absent from the body is to be face-to-face with Jesus Christ, and we have a heavenly abode. That's unique to the church and our expectations, all right? Jesus said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, I go to prepare a place for you. And then he's been in heaven preparing that place for us ever since. So these are the expectations. What do the angels have as an expectation? servitude. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? 
All right, because the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Angels will be our servants for all eternity. Let's not lose sight of that. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? So there's a tandem between man and son of man. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels, lower than God. And you have, or the angels, I think is a better translation. That's what we have here. For you have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in, and then verse 8, the last verse I'll read. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, but... Now, presently, we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. All right. You spot that there in verse 8? Just make a little star, make a little mark there. The kingdom isn't here yet. And if you're a part of some prosperity theology church or some kind of kingdom now approach to Christianity, that's an approach that needs to change. The kingdom isn't here yet. We don't see it yet. It's not yet manifest yet. He is seated at the Father's right hand in session until such time as the Father says, your enemies are now a footstool for your feet. Until then, we don't see it. We don't see it yet. And I think far too many Christians are trying to live now as if we're there. We're not in the millennium yet. We are still in the church age, the age of satanic sifting. So we better be um, fully aware of that reality. All right, so last week we uh, gave some points here about this world to come this world to come, the world that we're going to judge. We will judge the world. We will judge angels, but we're not yet suited to do that. We're still in the process of being suited for doing that. And while we're in the process of being suited for doing that, we should presently now take care of our own business, make sure our house is in order. And this is the emphasis from 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2 and 3. Um, instead of suing one another and going to court with one another, let's take care of our own business. Why are we suing one another? Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Oh, I've got a problem with somebody in my church, so I'm going to drag him into court. Why would I do that? Why don't I just deal with my brother in the church? And I can find a pastor or a deacon or an older man or somebody with some wisdom and we will deal with this in a way that glorifies Jesus Christ. I don't want to take this before the unbeliever and bring shame and dishonor to Jesus Christ. It says in verse 2, and and do you dare? How dare you? Go to law before the unrighteous and not before saints. And maybe even if the judge happens to be a born-again believer, you're still in a human court, so how dare you? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? See, that's the world to come. If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? So since the church is presently being prepared for what we're going to do in the resurrection, why don't we start acting like it now? Why don't we start taking care of our business now amongst ourselves? As part of That will be a good preparation for what we're going to do when we get there. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? 
So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? They don't even have standing. You know when a judge throws something out and says you don't even have standing? Or this is in the wrong court, this is in the wrong venue, and they they throw it out? Well, guess what? Those secular courts, I don't care if it's the Supreme Court with Chief Justice Roberts or whoever else, our business is our business as the royal family of God. And the Supreme Court of the United States has no standing for the lampstand that we call Austin Bible Church. All right? And that's just 1 Corinthians 6 too. So we're being suited for this. Our Savior is being suited for this. The bride is being suited to be the Savior's bride. How come we get judgment? I thought all judgment was given to the Son. Right? It doesn't say in the Gospel of John, all judgment has been given to the Son. So why do we have judgment? Because we are in the Son positionally we are in Christ. We are one with Jesus Christ. In His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, His session, His judgment. How beautiful is that? I'm glad that when the Father looks at me, He doesn't see the vile sinner. He sees the beloved Son. How beautiful is that? All right, so the world to come is subjected to the final stewardship that is the dispensation of the Father's house, the dispensation of the fullness of times. It is centered on Jesus Christ and His bride. And I walked you through these Ephesians verses last week, and I hope you go through them again and again and again, all right? Because the emphasis is not only on the here and now, but it's also on the future. So very quickly, before I gain new ground and we want to cover some new things, let's, uh, let's look at these Ephesians verses. So that even if it's right now, maybe it's just over your head and whatever, fine. Put it on the back burner and let it simmer for a little bit. Nothing wrong with that. If you're not ready to eat yet, then just put it on the back burner and keep it warm. Uh, there will come a day that you want to eat it. When you want to eat it, you want to eat it warm. So put it on the back burner. But you'll notice Ephesians 1.10 is the dispensation of the fullness of the times. That's the Father's plan. That's the Father's purpose, not the church age. This is getting ready for that with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. All right. And right now we got the bride in two different places. Most of the brides in heaven, the last uh, generation of the bride is still on this earth until the rapture. We won't have a completed bride. And when you get down here, you'll notice in verses 22 and 23 language that speaks about the future. And so uh, God's power is coming to us, the power when He raised up Jesus Christ from the dead. Are you with me still? Ephesians 1 and verse 20. Seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Notice, every name that is named, that is the doctrine we studied in Hebrews chapter 1. When Jesus made purification for sins, he was seated at the Father's right hand, having inherited a more excellent name than the angels. So here he is, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so the Father's plan includes this age and the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Now, is that in this age or is that in the age to come? Notice, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The fullness is not on the church age. 
The fullness of him who fills is the dispensation of the fullness of times. And so that fullness will happen for a thousand generations in the, in the new heavens and new earth. It is future focused, but it requires us to be growing here and now in the church age. Then you get to chapter 2 and verse 7. And again, it's in the ages to come. He, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's in the ages to come. Now, right now he's showing grace, isn't he? A lot of you this morning, I asked, tell me about God's faithfulness. Tell me about God's grace. And and you were able to tell me things about his faithfulness, about his grace. And that's great. But everything he's showing today is, is preparing for what he's going to show in the ages to come. And uh, you'll notice that's the emphasis here. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. Whatever grace we get in here and now, it's going to be surpassing in the ages to come. That's when super grace finally hits. Okay, If you happen to know a pastor that maybe has taught that doctrine in the past. All right. Verse 21 and 22 of also chapter 2 here in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. That's a process. And we're the last generation of that process. I hope, I believe, we're going to hear a trumpet and you and I are the last finishing touches of this this temple, of this house, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And think of how many, 2,000 years he's been building this church. What do you think he's going to do with it when it's done? (laughs) nothing oh well that was fun not do anything with it finally get it together and then what okay see god's not a moron god doesn't take like like we spend hours and hours putting a jigsaw puzzle together and then when it's finished we just crumple it up and put it back in the box okay to me that's the dumbest thing in the world (laughs) but people like puzzles my wife likes puzzles so there you go okay but, you know, if you're going to put that many hours into putting this thing together, all right. Anyway, that's, you put a seal over the top of it and, and lacquer it, put it in a frame and put it on the wall, and then you never have to do it ever again because it's done. <laughs> the point being, though, when God finally finishes a bride for his son, how spectacular is that going to be? And do you really think the wedding is the end of the plan of God for the bride of Christ? Are you kidding me? He went through all that preparation work to create a royal priesthood, a bride suitable for his son. We've got glorious things in front of us. Okay, because he didn't subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. We are in Christ and everything he does, we're going to be right there with him. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Chapter 3 and verse 21 also, looking forward to to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we could ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. To the age of the ages. Amen. This is not a church age reality. This is the fullness of time when it's fulfilled. When the Father in Christ and in the bride, in the church is going to be doing this. Chapter 4, verse 10, uh, we are growing. He who descended is himself, he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Well, when's he going to fill? Fullness of times. 
He falls in the fullness, and we are the fullness of He who fills. That is the bride. In verse 13, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That applies to our individual growth, but it applies corporately to the bride. We will be suited for the bride. And just as he brought Eve to Adam and she was the perfect helpmate for him, there is no, there is no helpmate suitable for the, the last Adam until the bride is complete. Then when the bride is complete, he will bring us to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the rapture is all about. All right, so we have that, the world to come. Understand the angelic world was destroyed by water, the present world will be destroyed by fire, but the world to come will never be destroyed. The world to come will never be destroyed. And uh, you have a, a passage that goes well with our studies here in Hebrews. It comes out of 2 Peter chapter 3. You might have uh, heard of 2 Peter chapter 3 because my, my uh, call to worship comes from verse 13 of 2 Peter chapter 3. But what leads up to that is uh, the destruction of the present heavens and earth. And uh, these mockers that think that day is never coming, they need to wake up and realize that day is coming. And it came once already, because this is not the, the first world. That the first world was previously destroyed by water. This world is going to be destroyed by fire. All right, Second Peter 3, verses 5 and 6. Now some people take this as a Noah reference, I, and I think it's better to take this as an angelic world reference, but we will, we'll solve that on a different day. Um, but uh, know this first of all that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts and saying where is the promise of his coming for ever since the fathers fell asleep all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation it's the way it's always been and it takes it back to creation and then peter says you know what there was something before that there was the creation before this creation there was the angelic earth how about the Genesis 1-1 before the Genesis 1-2? For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Now people take that as a Noah reference. I think it's better to take it as the Tohu Wabohu, which was a water judgment upon the angelic earth. But by either way, by His word now, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And so that's the contrast. The angelic world was destroyed by water. The present world will be destroyed by fire. Verse 7, verse 10, verse 12. Um, verse 10 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. So that whole periodic table you memorized back in the day, don't need it anymore. They're gone. Everything is consumed. The elements are gone. All matter becomes energy. Isn't that cool? After that it won't matter, right? Sorry. Verse 7, verse 10, verse 12 looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But, according to His promise, 
We're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we're looking for the other side, on the other side of the judgment, on the other side of the destruction. The world to come will never be destroyed. And so we have promises of this, promises of this that are coming up in Hebrews, promises of this that were given previously in the Old Testament, a kingdom which cannot be shaken, Hebrews 12, 28. You know, this perspective keeps us stable. This perspective keeps us from getting all worked up over, you know, politics or earthly stuff, or at least it should. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Right? Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Our God is a consuming fire. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Let's understand the God whom we serve. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith. Yes, we are recipients of His mercy, recipients of His grace. But God is still a God of wrath, a God of fire, a consuming fire. God is a God of righteousness and justice. We are on holy ground. We must serve in reverence. Do we lose our reverence because of grace? Sometimes I think believers do. For our God is a consuming fire. So we should show gratitude. We have received the kingdom which cannot be shaken. You can never lose your salvation, but you must walk in a manner that's worthy of the grace with which you have been saved. Psalm 145 and verse 13. See, it goes back to the Old Testament. They were looking forward to a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And for the Jews, they knew that it was going to be a Davidic throne that it was going to be the Jewish kingdom, it was going to be the head of the kingdom which cannot be shaken. So they had that hope and expectation. Psalm 145 and verse 13. Um, Verse 8 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and His mercies are over all His works. Even the unbeliever that hates Him still receives the grace and mercy of God day by day. Wakes up on God's earth. He brings. He breathes God's air. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. So that's what we have to look forward to. We're looking forward to new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That kingdom will never be shaken. By the way, can the millennium fulfill that? Millennium is only a thousand years. That's just a day. All right? That's just one day. What about the eternal day to follow? Daniel 2.44. I love Daniel. Teach Daniel a lot. In fact, (laughs) Daniel 2, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 7. How many times can you say this over and over and over again? A kingdom that cannot be shaken. You know, Nebuchadnezzar saw a dream of a great statue and there was a head of gold and a chest of silver and belly and thighs of bronze and legs of iron. He saw this huge statue, but every statue representing these coming kingdoms and these coming kingdoms were getting replaced until the end of the dream. And then here comes the kingdom of heaven. 
Here comes a stone made without hands and it comes from heaven, comes crashing to the earth, crashing violently, powerfully, not babe in the manger humbly, but powerfully. We're talking second advent, wrath of God, crashing to the earth and it smashes all those other kingdoms and it grows to become an eternal kingdom which cannot be shaken. So Daniel 2.44 says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Alright, so here's the kingdom of God. And it's going to smash everything else and it will endure forever. But then you have David's kingdom. And David's kingdom was promised to rule forever. So how can he have two kingdoms that rule forever? Well, you can't if they're different things. You can if they're the same thing. That that eternal kingdom, that kingdom of heaven, is, is, is the kingdom with the Davidic throne where Jesus reigns uh, over Israel and over all mankind for all eternity. All right, so that's forever. Chapter 4, verse 3 and verse 34, forever. Here's Nebuchadnezzar's song. Uh, How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. Kings come and go. Before Nebuchadnezzar was Nabopolassar. Before Nabopolassar was the Assyrians. All right, but they overthrew the Assyrians. And then now we got Babylonians. After Nebuchadnezzar, it'd be somebody else. Kings come and go, but God reigns forever. And when, he, when the kingdom of God comes to earth, that kingdom cannot be shaken. It will reign forever. Verse 34 of the same chapter, 434. At the end of that period, when he stops being an animal and he wakes up, comes to his senses, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. The living God, He lives now, He will live, He always lives. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. As nothing. But He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, what have you done? The sovereignty of God in the invisible realm and in the visible realm in heaven and on earth. Okay, and that's what it's about. When we talk about the kingdom of heaven coming, it's thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it uh, will never end. Not after a thousand years, not after a thousand generations. It will never end. Chapter 6 and verse 26. Still in Daniel. Darius learns this. Well, uh, Daniel spends the night with the lions and then Daniel comes out and uh, Darius sings this hymn. I make a decree that in the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel for he is the living God and endures forever. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. Remember, and, and Darius is one that was one of the conquerors that brought down the downfall of Babylon and brought about the rise of Persia. And uh, guess what? Persia is going to fall. Alexander's going to take care of Persia and then the Greeks will rise and then the Greeks are going to fall and the Romans will rise and then the Romans will fall. And that's what happens with human kingdoms. Not with God. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. 
And so there it is. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 14 and verse 27. And pay attention because this we get into some deep doctrine with this when we understand the Father and the Son. And when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, and we have this with, the, with man and the Son of man. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion. Understand, this happened. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was buried. He rose on the third day. Then he ascended to the Father's throne. And he was inherited a much better name than any angel, a name above all names. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's what we're looking forward to. Same chapter down to verse 27. And you'll notice, here comes Antichrist, here comes ten horns, here comes a boastful horn. And um, he's, uh, Antichrist has his plan and program. He will speak out against the Most High, that's Daniel 7.25. He will wear down the saints of the Highest One. He will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. He gets three and a half years to unleash all the hell he wants on this earth. But then he's done. The court will sit for judgment. His dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And all the... uh, all dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts are greatly alarming me. My face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. You can imagine receiving this vision and the toll that it put him through. All right. So the angelic world was destroyed by water. The present world will be destroyed by fire, but the world to come will never be destroyed. Jesus Christ rules over a kingdom that cannot be shaken all right which gets us now to verses six through eight hebrews 2 verses six through eight but one has testified somewhere saying and i love that isn't that great if you ever find yourself fuzzy for a bible verse and you can't remember where in the bible it is that's all right author of hebrews likewise One has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you were concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. And here's the contrast, little while versus forever, right? You and I, we suffer for a little while. We have momentary light afflictions and they're not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. For a little while lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. So what do you have left over? If you put everything in a bucket, what's left over? Nothing. That's right. Everything is everything, and the only thing that's not everything is nothing. Okay? Except. And there, may, there might be some exceptions. This passage has one exception, and Paul brought up another exception. 
and we want to understand the exceptions, the exceptions we don't make, but the Bible itself makes with respect to the subjecting of all things. All right. Uh, so what are we dealing with here? This comes from, the author of Hebrews didn't know it, but you and I know, it comes from Psalm 8. Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. And as we mentioned already, and you've seen already, we have so much Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. From Psalm 2, Thou art my son, today I have begotten you, to Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Also Psalm 110, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Psalm 8, he made him for a little while lower than the Elohim, lower than the angels. And uh, so many other psalms that all come into the book of Hebrews. All right, We want to understand these to see what our application is because we're not Hebrews. <laughs> we are bride of Christ. We are neither Jew nor Gentile. So why is this such a powerful book for us? You'll see. Okay? And hopefully you've already been seeing. Um, so Psalm 8 verses 4 through 6, forms the core text for the book of Hebrews' exaltation of Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. The rhetorical question, what is man? Sometimes it's combined with, and the son of man. Sometimes it just sits by itself. Who am I, O Lord? Or what is man, O Lord? These are presented multiple times in the Old Testament, and they are fun. They're fun to go through, and they are theologically significant. And you can just imagine, because they had such a limited perspective. They, they didn't know what we know in the church age. And yet they knew about the man and the son of man and what God had planned for the resurrection. We already showed you Job's example. I know that my Redeemer lives. And Job, without any Bible, was looking forward to the new heavens and new earth as you and I are. All right. So um, Job 7, 17, Psalm 8, 4, Psalm 144, 3. And I think these are useful as well. If we can get through these before communion, we'll do well here. Job 7, 17. And where in the arguments does this come? So... Uh, we're used to the story in uh, Job 1 and 2, and then Job's lament comes in uh, chapter 3, and then the friends start speaking in chapter 4, all right? And starting off with Eliphaz, and Eliphaz uh, dumps on Job <laughs> for two full chapters in chapter 4 and chapter 5, and then Job's going to respond, and Job responds in chapter 6 and chapter 7. So that's where we are in the book of Job. Chapter 7 is a part of Job's response to his first critic. And uh, yeah, Job's not impressed with uh, the words of this critic. And um, in chapter 7, it's, it's curious to me when he comes through this. Um, so verse 7-7 uh, seven, seven says... Remember that my life is but a breath. Uh, my eye will not again see good. You know, you, you go through nights that you're afraid you're going to die, and then you go through nights you're afraid you're not going to die. Um, in Job 7, 4, he says, When I lie down, I say, When shall I arise? But the night continues. I'm continually tossing until dawn. Uh, I mean, he's going through it. And uh, so verse 7, My life is but a breath. My eye will not again see good. Job will never again have a happy day. He's convinced. Every happy day of his life is already behind him. 
Um, the eye of him who sees me will behold me no longer. Your eyes will be on me, but I will not be you know, telling his friends, yeah, keep criticizing. I'm almost dead anyway, so keep it up. Um, but verse 11, Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. If you're, if you're this bitter, you're just going to close your mouth? Am I the sea or the dragon that you set a guard over me? It's curious to me how much angelic conflict Job knew about when he becomes the prime target for the dragon himself. Am I the sea or the dragon that you set a guard over me? If I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint. (laughs) Well, if nothing else, I can at least go to sleep and forget my problems while I'm sleeping. Except he keeps dreaming about them. You frighten me with dreams, terrify me by visions so that my soul would choose suffocation, death, rather than my pains. If there's no escape, then except for death maybe can be an escape. I waste away, I will not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are but a breath. What is man that you magnify him, and that you are concerned about him? Now isn't this something? In the context when he recognizes that God is in battle against the dragon, there is this thing called man. And God is concerned for man. That you examine him every morning and try him every moment. The fact that you're under God's microscope, that God is dealing with you, that God loves you enough to examine you and test you and work in your growth, why is that? I mean, how special are we? What is man? You see the unique uh, privilege of this? Will you never turn your gaze away from me nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target? Okay? God can shoot arrows too. He doesn't miss. So I'm a burden to myself. Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me, but I will not be. Anyway, this is This is Job's lament. But it highlights the what is man, that we are not the dragon, we are not the enemy, we are not the object of his wrath, we are the object of his daily examinations and his growth and his blessing and his love. That's beautiful. And Job knew all of this without any Bible, without any Hebrew scriptures. All right, Psalm 8, the psalm that gets quoted in Hebrews 2. Psalm 8. Maybe I should have started with that, but no, Job is older than Psalms, so let's go to Job first. All right, Psalm 8, it's a Davidic psalm. O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendors above the heavens. So what's the most spectacular thing God's ever made? It's us. Isn't that something? From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Why does he use humans? Why does he use procreation? Why does he use babies? Angels don't procreate. Angels don't produce babies, except for the Nephilim rebellion. But there are no girl angels. How is humanity designed to resolve the angelic conflict? So there's adversaries and then there's man to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers... 
the moon and the stars which you have ordained. When I look out across the galaxies and I see all the things the Hubble telescope's given us and we see all these other things, what is man? This puny little creature, this dust creature, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. What is the, what is the, the key doctrine contained in son of man? That you care for him. The fact that we have generation to generation to generation, it's a blessing to father a son in your image because that's another generation that gets to testify to the glory of the son in the father's image. What a delight. And no angel gets to do that. Except for, again, the Nephilim and their rebellion. Uh, you have made him a little lower than the Elohim. And this is, a, this is a fun Hebrew exercise, and we'll have to deal with this next week. We'll talk about the Hebrew of Elohim that sometimes is translated God and sometimes is translated angels. Psalm 144 and verse 3. I'm right up at the top of the hour, and I know any, any second now, Molly will come back in and then... All right, Psalm 144. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle, my loving kindness and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. The worst enemies David ever faced were his own people. O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains that they may smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and confuse them. Stretch forth your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me out of the great waters, out of the hand of aliens, whose mouth speaks deceit, whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. You know, of all the psalms David ever wrote, you're looking forward to the new ones on the way. What what might David write in the millennium? What kind of songs do you think he'll write in the resurrection? All right, well, we'll pick up here. Um, I do want to talk about the Elohim. I want to talk about the translation of Elohim and then uh, how the unfolding plan of God and then the subjection, the subjection of all things which we don't see yet. We don't see yet except by faith. Because faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for this study. And I pray, Father, as we get into some of the deepest, deepest of things that we'll understand, the angels that preceded man, Gentiles that preceded Jews, the church which is neither Jew nor Gentile, the kingdom to come, Father, and the world to come. Father, help us to identify our place in all of this as the bride of Christ. Uh, Father, we are fellow heirs with the heir of all things. And this is just a a very humbling, unbelievable sense of glory. So Father, uh, might we appreciate these things all the more as we approach the Lord's table. Thank you again, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.